Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 286, and I had a conversation with DJ Vodica. He is a former prison guard. Uh, he was with the Investigative Services Unit, among other things. But And uh, that's basically uh, like the internal affairs, that when things happen, crimes within the walls of the prison system, he and his fellow investigators go in and try and figure out what happened and, and who the victims are and who the perpetrators are. He wrote a book called The Green Wall, which details his being the whistleblower uncovering the prison guard gang, the 723 gang, also known as The Green Wall. It is one heck of a story. Wow, just really intense and important to hear and to talk about. And he was very forthcoming and open. His book, The Green Wall, is on Amazon. It's also available on his website. He said his website at the end of this episode, but I had never heard of this. It's called a Twix site. I'd never heard of that before. So I went and looked it up. And the actual web address to get to his website is very long and convoluted. Uh, so I'm going to put a link on the links page so that it's easy for you to find I just uh, I just want to make that clear because he'll he'll mention it at the end and it took me a minute to figure out what he was talking about not to you know not to give him shade on his website but <laughs> it was a little confusing trying to find it in other news hey human podcast as always can be found on social media under Instagram and Facebook my personal social media is under Susan Ruthism under Twitter Facebook and Instagram. You can email me, Susan at HeyHumanPodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you always. And if you want to sign up on the mailing list, head over to SusanRuth.com and you can sign up there. And also check out the other things I do, music, art, acting, interviews of me, that kind of stuff. Speaking of music, if you go to any musical place like Spotify or Amazon Music or iTunes, you'll find me under Susan Ruth and some of my old albums. Yes, I've talked about new music I'm making, and that is still true. I will, you know, finish up the, the five songs, and I'm excited for you to hear those as well. You can rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and it really helps. So please do that if you get the, a minute. Uh, it doesn't take very long go ahead and do that. As I mentioned before, there's a links page on heyhumanpodcast.com. Every episode has its own pile of links. I carefully go through the old internets and pick stuff out for you so that it's a no-brainer. You can just go to the links page and do a deep dive on whomever I've had on the show. I can't believe we're up to 286 episodes. It's really quite something uh, and I don't know if you're new to the show and you're just discovering it and which is what new to the show means. I know I'm repeating myself, but definitely go back and, and check out some of the earlier episodes. Sound quality, you know, I was still figuring it out that first year, but man, I got some really cool interviews and definitely don't don't just think that it's the the last six months or so where things get good. I mean, there's all sorts of gems in there, just fascinating people uh, that I think you'd enjoy. Go back and check it out. I think that's about it for the 
the, the usual suspects of things. If you're in a donating mood, there is a support button on the heyhumanpodcast.com website and your donations help keep the show ad free so please if you are feeling like that is something you'd like to do please do i appreciate it okay let's get into this thank you for listening stay safe be well take care of each other and uh here we go dj vodka welcome to hey human thanks for having me how are you doing today oh doing good traveling a little bit we're on the road so this is all new experience for me and my wife. We we sold our house in Arizona, so we're we're just traveling around the United States to see uh, what our next destination is going to be. Any place in particular that stood out to you on your travels that you loved? Uh, we were we were we're up here in Indiana, Elkhart, Indiana. It's about an hour from the border of Michigan and a couple hours from Chicago. We're just up here for a couple weeks, relaxing, and then we're going to make our way down towards. Uh, Kentucky and Tennessee and then spend our winters in Florida just just hang out and enjoy the the land and, and look for another home base you got sick of Arizona yeah too hot too hot too crowded you know just the west coast I want to we want to change and see a different different area that makes sense how long have you been married uh we've been together 16 years we've been married 13 did you meet in Arizona Yes. Uh, after when I was going through uh, the stuff with the California Department of Corrections and uh, I came home to uh, take care of my mom and dad, I actually helped my dad take care of my mom and she wasn't doing good. And then shortly I got home after that, I, my father passed away and then I stayed in Arizona and helped mm. take care of my mom. And I met, that's how I met Mary. And then we just, we made our, I made my home in Arizona then. You grew up in California though? Yeah, I grew up in Camarillo, Ventura County in, in California. Yeah. Did you come from a, a household that was by the book, by the rules? It was, uh, you know, my dad was retired military air force and, you know, we, we were raised the right way and what, what is right and what is wrong. And, uh, and we had beliefs in what we believed in certain things. And I, I we had a, I had a good up, upbringing. Yeah. I'm sorry about uh, your dad passing away. Did you, and your no, mom you know. just, my mom, shortly after that, my dad passed, but my dad, my dad was the one that influenced me to, um, to write the, the book that I wrote that is real powerful in the United States right now, uh, amongst, uh, a lot of people. And, and he was the one, his last words to me before he passed away were, son, me and your mom are proud of you and what you've done and, and what you stood for. And, uh, why don't you write a book and share your story with the world? They need to know about what prison guards do to inmates behind the prison walls in California and, Share your story. Let everybody know. You served in the military. <laughs> yeah, I was in the, in the army. Uh, I, uh, after I got out of college, junior college, I I went in the army from 1983 to 1987, and then a year later, I joined the California Department of Corrections in March of 1988. And when you went in, I assume that you had a feeling of that right and wrong carrying with you. How does how did you go into the system as a guard? where there, there were going to be people that, that maybe spent their lifetime not doing the things on the right path or, you know, maybe they faltered on their path or whatever it was that ended them up being incarcerated. What was your thought about those kinds of people when you were going in back then? Well, you know, I, I went in to serve and protect and watch over these guys, the convicts and inmates. I wasn't there to judge, judge them. 
I was just to make sure they uh, everybody got along and programmed and in a you know the security type thing and making sure they they follow the rules and regulations and do what they are told to do and and to th- try to keep the peace. That's mainly what correctional officers are there for, you know, to to supervise the yards and supervise inmates and uh, and and we're not there to judge them. The courts did the judging and the jury did the judging and um, that was up to them on before they got incarcerated and came came to prison. Before we get into your book and talking about that, your day-to-day life within those walls, I read that you you were in a uh, high security environment, correct? That's correct. I worked, uh, well, there's five levels in the Department of Corrections in California. Level five is actually uh, death row of San Quentin, but there's level one through level fours. And uh, level ones are the minimum security, twos are minimum, threes and fours are behind the fence, the razor wire. And uh, I dealt with nothing but level threes and level fours throughout my career. Most of them are, most of the inmates are in that I dealt with were in for life. Uh, 85% were in for life. Did you develop camaraderie with people like that? I mean, are, is there an allowance for guards to become friendly with prisoners? And when we were taught in the academy, in, in Galt Academy, we, we're, not, we're not to be their friends or, or, you know, give them personal information. But, you know, you have to socialize with them. You have to talk to them with respect. And you, get, you get that respect from them. You get respect back. And, and you, you go in there with a heavy hand or you think you're, you're above the law then, you know, these convicts and inmates see that and they're going to deal with you accordingly, you know, and then, and that wasn't me, you know, I mean, in the 18 years I was in before I went out on retirement, um, I was assaulted one time by an inmate, but he wasn't all there, you know, Um, but a lot of the inmates and convicts had respect for me. They always wanted to work for me because I showed them that respect. I gave them that respect and, and uh, I could talk to them like a normal person, not top down to What was something that you saw as far as a common thread among people that were incarcerated at that level? Did you see any commonalities? Yeah, they all had different personalities. All of them. Well, they most of the guys I dealt with were a lot of gang passions. Uh, uh, The Hispanic inmates hung with each other. The northern Hispanics, the whites, the blacks, you know, they hung with each other. They socialized a little bit with each other. But uh, a lot of them had their... You know, we, we didn't go in there and start a conversation with them, you know, and, and, and sit there and talk to them for minutes or whatever. But uh, a lot of them would walk the yard and say, hey, Officer Vodica, or hey, boss, how you doing? And, and you know, they stopped and talked to me for a little bit. And, you know, but as uh, far as us approaching them and, and, and starting a conversation with them, uh, we, we really didn't do that because we were there to oversee and, and to watch everything that was going on. And you were part of an internal investigation that sussed out crimes within the inmates? Yes, I um, I acted fate at three state prisons under my belt. Well, when I first got out of the academy, I went to Corcoran State Prison in Central Valley by Visalia in 1988. I stayed there till about 1992, and then I transferred down to uh, Calipatria State Prison down below Palm Springs in Indio. That was a new prison in 1992, and at that time, I became part of the investigations unit, the Internal Affairs Unit (ISU), where we we investigate staff and inmates. Uh, that are doing wrongdoing inside the prison system, criminal activity. And uh, that's when I started my career with ISU investigations at Cal- Calipat State Prison in 1992. And then shortly after that, I met, uh, I met uh, my first wife down there in, in, in that area. And, we, and then I transferred to the notorious Pelican Bay State Prison in Northern California in March of 1994. And my arrival there, I ended up going back into investigations, ISU. 
I was the evidence officer at that prison. I did all the evidence, all the crime scenes and homicides at that prison. I was the sole person to, to handle that, to take charge of that, to, to, you know, find who did it and what happened. And, and then uh, shortly after that, in 96, I left there. And then I went down to Salinas Valley State Prison in Monterey. Uh, once again, I, I set up the ISU unit, investigations unit there. And uh, I stayed in that unit for about two years. So I got burned out. And, and then I went back to the main line with the other officers to try to work with them. And, and then, then the Thanksgiving riot happened in 1998. And that's when the Green Wall formed. We'll get, we'll get to that. I want to keep in, along your path. What makes that particular prison the worst of the worst? Because uh, when new institutions, prisons open up in the Department of Corrections, uh, they wait for the inmates to come there. And the other institutions in, in, the, in the state of California send their worst prisoners. They can't program at their prison, so they want to dump them on us. So they send all the bad inmates, the ones that don't program at their prisons, to us. So now we got to deal with their problems at this new prison, not knowing who they are, where they came from how much trouble they've been in, are they staff assaultive, or they just don't want to listen to those guards or, or us. And it takes time to, to establish that, that, uh, that criteria with these guys and, and to get our prison in control. And the first couple months, a few months, it's, it's rock and roll, riots, fights, staff assaults. It's, it's on. It's like the gladiator days, you know, us against them. And uh, we're, we're, we're fighting with them all, every day, you know. It's the upper administration, the wardens at the other prisons don't want to, they, they don't want these problem children at their at their prison. So they, they say, hey, Calipatri is opening up a new prison. Let's send our bad, get all our bad guys out here, put them on a bus and send them down there. Let them deal with it. They don't get programmed, meaning they won't, they don't fall in line with the rules and regulations within the prison system. That's correct. They don't, they don't want to listen to anybody. They don't listen to prison guards. They don't want to listen to anybody. So now we have, we have to deal with these guys on a one-on-one -on -one basis. It's like flushing the toilet. You know, let's, let's get rid of our bad guys and give them to the new prison. When you're investigating a violent crime within the prison system, I can't imagine within you know the singular walls of a prison. How do you get to the bottom of things? Because I can't imagine there's too many people willing to, as you would say, squeal on someone else. Or how did how in the world do you unravel that? It's just you just follow up with investigations on what's going on at the prison. Usually, uh. You know, I mean, you just do your investigations and see what's going on. I mean, inmates don't like to be called rats or snitches and, and staff members don't like to be called that either. But you got to keep living every day by day and making sure you go home not injured or hurt. And hopefully that one day the prison's going to go to normal normalcy, you know, and just everybody program the right way. And it, like I said, it takes it takes months months before a new prison comes online and the programs are running smooth. It is interesting to me that we put a moniker like a rat or a snitch on someone who is trying to do the right thing, that they're the bad guy somehow when they're trying to do the right thing. Yeah, I, I know the feeling. That's what was put on me when I, uh, I broke the code of silence amongst the biggest prison guard in the nation, in the Department of Corrections in California. I, I I was labeled a rat and a snitch and a no good and dead man walking when I, when I exposed the green wall at Salinas Valley State Prison in 1998. The riot. Thanksgiving, uh, November of 1998, the Southern Hispanic inmates um, attacked staff on the upper yard because uh, the Southern Hispanic inmates were being disrespected by uh, correctional officers on, on that yard, on that facility. And they, that was a, the right time to move in on them because there's less staff there, less admin. Because uh, during the holidays, there's nobody at work. It's just a less skeleton crew on officers. And they, they timed it right. And they assaulted staff on the yard. And 
I responded up there. And, I, and when I met with the, the lieutenant of that yard, we worked together at Pelican Bay and he knew I was prior ISU and, and I knew how to take charge of evidence control. And he asked me to do the crime scene and that, and I, and I did, I, I, I took care of that crime scene and, and, and uh, got the inmates, uh, got them photographed, had to go to the hospital, outside hospital, because we had officers going out to the outside hospital. They were assaulted. I had to go take pictures of them and their injuries and take reports on them. And then I came back and I had to photograph the inmates that were still laying down in the prone position. And when I, when the prison guards rolled them over, there were inmate manufactured shanks or knives underneath them because uh, that's what they used on the staff. And um, shortly after that, I had to photograph the, the inmates prior to getting escorted back into their cells, making sure they didn't have injuries on them prior to going back in. And, and that's when my, uh, I was, I was a called inmate lover, a rat or a snitch. Why are you working with those guys? And that's, that's, you know, that's when it all started. Why are you working to help the inmates? You mean? Right. Help the inmates. Why are you, why are you on their side? Why, why don't you just let us take them back to their, their cells? And, and after I photographed the inmates, for, they had no injuries on them. When they took him back to the cells, the officers, part of the green wall, part of that yard, assaulted the inmates. They beat them down, destroyed their property, and and tuned them up pretty good, and threw them back in their cells. And, and uh, nothing happened until a couple months later, when a big investigation occurred. And, and then Sacramento, their internal affairs units up there, came down and did a big investigation on what happened on Thanksgiving there. And that's that's it. That that whole story is in the book, the book, the green wall. It's on Amazon and. Uh, and that's when I, um, I exposed the corruption behind the walls by these prison guards who were part of the ISU unit, the investigations unit. They were, they were the guys that, are, uh, that were part of the Greenwell, and they started recruiting other officers to, to join in. And the new officers coming in at Academy, they, they yanked them in and said, hey, you want to be on your own or you want to be a part of our, our little clique, our little gang called the Greenwell? Because the Greenwell, um, Susan, we wore green jumpsuits in the Department of Corrections with yellow patches on us. Our, our uniforms were green, light green and green. That's why they call themselves the Green Wall. They call themselves the 723, which is the seventh letter of the alphabet is G and the 23rd is W. So they call them 723 or through gang signs up. And um, they were they were they started out small and they got deep later on. They had the backing from the warden at that prison. The warden told these guys to go put fear and intimidation to the inmates. These inmates are going to control my prison. You do what you got to do to make this prison run smooth again. Did they not see that they were behaving the same exact way as the people on the inside by perf by behaving this way? You mean the prison guards? Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, I mean, other prison guards see how they act. I mean, the staff, the supervisors, sergeant, lieutenants—they're not going to interfere. You know, they can talk to these officers and all that, but they're not going to interfere with them. They're just going to let them do what they want because they had the backing of the warden. These other supervisors who work the yards weren't part of it. They don't, they don't want to go on the carpet with the warden and answer to the wardens. Why are you messing with my guys that are part of the green wall? Why, you know, I mean, he was the warden. He controlled the prison. He can make your life hard. He can make your life miserable as a supervisor or anything else. You know, I mean, he controlled that prison and he had this group of guards who he had trust in, 100% trust in, that he worked with at Soledad, the other prison next door. They worked with him and, and he, they had the backing of this, these guys. And who the warden, that warden at that prison kept it from his superiors in Sacramento. He didn't tell his bosses in Sacramento what he was doing at, the, at his prison. When did you start to realize that there was a, a guard gang? After the Thanksgiving riot, I had a video of cell, cell extraction uh, about a month later. 
I do video cell extraction. And, and when we go into a cell extraction, we have to give our name, our, our badge number, and what we're doing in the cell extraction under a video. And one of the last officers who um, said his name and his, and, his, and his badge number and what he was doing, he threw the W sign up. This is, this is actually looked like a W. You get your thumb and you pull your middle finger down, and it looks like a W. He threw that across his chest, and that was a, a moniker, a signal for the wall, the green wall. That was her sign. That was her gang sign. And then, then all, all hell started breaking loose. And then I, I, uh, I informed the captain of that who was doing the, in charge of that cell extraction, told him what was going on. He said, what? I said, yeah. I said, he, he pulled that video and he looked at the video and he went up to the warden and said, hey, this, here's, here's, Monica's got dead fact. There is a form of a green wall. These officers are green wall. These guys are assaulting inmates and doing criminal activity and we need to do something about it. And, the warden chose not to do anything to that officer. He let him go. Didn't want to uh, discipline it because the ward was in control of that whole green wall unit. Did the guards realize that you were trying to suss them out or were you more covert about it in the beginning? No, they, they, uh, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't play that card with them. You know, they knew I was pr pretty much straight and I wasn't going to belong to a group of guys like this. And, and, you know, it was hard to, to adapt, you know, and then, but then I, I requested to get out of that area and I went to the vehicle Sally port down where all the buses and cars come into the prison. That was my job down there to check the vehicles going in and out and, and, and away from the inmate population and other staff and all that. And then um, shortly after that, um, uh, uh, I was called up to the warden's office and uh, that same warden who was in charge of the green wall. And I didn't know he was behind the whole ordeal. He, he called me up and he asked me, Hey, Vodica, uh, I need a report from you that, I heard you knew a lot about who these guys on the green wall are. I said, yes, sir. I know who they are. I know what they're doing. Well, I want a report. I need a report from them. You know, I need a report from you. Everything you know. And I said, well, sir, I have to work with these guys. He said, well, I need my report on my desk on Monday. I'm ordering you to write this report and get it to me on Monday. It was a Friday when he called me in. I said, well, well if I don't do it, he goes, well, if you don't do it, I'll put you on administrative time off until I get that report. <laughs> so I called my buddy, Joe Renoso, who's in the book. I worked at Pelican Bay. He was my squad sergeant and told, talked to him about it. He says, DJ, I've trained you. Type everything up, stamp it confidential, turn, keep a copy for yourself, give him the report on Monday. And I did. I gave it to him on Monday. He said, thank you, Officer Vodica. I returned back to my, my uh, job assignment. And then two months later, uh, about, yeah, about, two, uh, about less than two months, I see these guys coming down part of the green wall on golf carts down towards where I'm at. And they stopped. And they came in the gate and Hey, Vodica, we need to talk to you, man. Can we have a word with you? Let's go in your office. Okay, I went in the office not knowing what was going on. And these officers, who are part of the green wall that the warden controlled, quoted verbatim out of my memorandum that I wrote to the ward. They knew exactly what I wrote. They said, you're a dead man. You're a dead man walking. You're a rat. You're a snitch. You're done. You're done. So the, from, later on, it's in the book, later on in the deposition testimony in the book, the warden called these officers up in his conference room and burned copies of my report and showed they had a meeting about what I did because I knew everything that was going on. Now, I, now they're in really trouble because now you're going to have heavier people come in from Sacramento office, inspector general, even the FBI, if they want to look into it and, and go after these officers who were corrupt doing criminal activity. And then shortly after that, Susan, I, um, I lost him and I, I, I didn't, I, I just totally lost it. And I had to go home. I mean, I, I was going crazy because I had trust in the ward, not knowing the ward was behind the ordeal. And he set me up, set me up for a fall. He wanted to know my knowledge of what I knew about these guys and what they were doing. And uh, shortly after that, I ended up getting moved to another prison overnight. Joe Renoso helped me and I got moved. Well, after that, uh, 
I, I met with, after that, that night, I met with the officer inspector general. They came down from Sacramento and met me at my house and took me out. And we, we he interviewed me for about four hours on what was going on on tape recorder and all that. And a couple of weeks later, they raided the prison and, and took all the warden out, all the internal affairs officers out, confiscated computers, everything. And they took it back to Sacramento to, to go through it and all that and to find out what's going on. And then, and then after that, I was a dead man. I, I couldn't stay there anymore. I couldn't live there. So they, Joe Renoso uh, helped me get a transfer overnight to another prison. I mean, I reported to a new prison on Monday, which is unheard of in the Department of Corrections to get me out of that prison for safety reasons. And it followed me over there later on, months later, it followed me over there. I had to go to a prison way away from Salinas Valley, like five, six hours away. Did the prison that they transferred you to also have a green wall? No, they didn't at the time. I didn't see anything there. They were mainly programming doing what they're doing they had a they had a tight ship there and they had, you know a lot of the officers were fairly new there and they were they didn't have a lot of discipline problems with inmates it's just a, a lower level prison level three prison level two but shortly after i got there you know as soon as i got there the the captain that was in that facility when i walked in he goes oh you're the you're you're the one that's on uh you're the victim witness program that we're getting in i looked at the captain i said you know it's none of your business captain you should not be saying that you know he was just joking around, I know, but, you know, the phone travels. I mean, you got Officer Vodica coming over. He's a rat and a snitch. Watch out. Watch your guys' back. Don't do anything wrong. And I stayed there for about five months until I ran to an alarm on the on – the, I ran to an alarm. I was a yard officer on one of the yards, and I ran to an alarm in a building, and it was a total setup. The officers were behind me. I ran through the rotunda. The gunner said, don't go any farther, Vodica. Stop, stop. Don't go in there. An inmate was going to take me out with a broom handle inside the house unit. He stopped me from going in. The other guard stopped at the front door. They weren't going to come in with me. They, they, they wanted to see me get taken out. So that was my last day at work. Wow. Yeah. So that was my last. I walked out of there. I, I let the lieutenant know how I felt about him and the sergeant on that yard. And, and they knew what was going on. They, it was a total setup. And then I walked up to the warden's office and I, I walked right into the chief deputy warden's office because the warden wasn't there. And, Chief Deputy Warden was there, a guy named Melfi. And, and uh, you know, I mean, I had time in. I had 10, 12, 14, 15 years in the department. And I had no problem walking in an office. And, and the secretary said, where are you going, Officer Vada? I said, I'm going to the chief. No, you can't. You can't go in there. He's in a meeting. I opened the door and I, he was in there meeting with somebody. I said, I have to have a word with you. He goes, you just don't walk in. You don't walk into my office like that, Officer Vada, because, you know, you're going to hear, you, you and your partner are going to hear what I have to say. And I, I lit him up. I told him how it was. And I said, I'm done. I'll see you in court. I'll see you in court later, Mr. Melfi. And then uh, I contacted Joe Renoso. I contacted my lawyer in California, and that was my last day at work before I testified in the Senate hearings of the state capitol in 2004 in full of a packed courthouse with Arnold Schwarzenegger on watching it on a video and a lot of people in the United States watching it on an audio video. And I, I exposed the green wall. Let's backtrack a minute. An alarm went off in the prison for inmates fighting or something and the way you were all supposed to respond, but they were trying to get you to go alone. So I that you didn't get attacked. That's correct. Because I ran it on the, on the buildings on the outside the housing. There's alarms like a, a buzzer goes off and a red blinking light. That's where there's a problem in that building. And us as yard officers have to run that to that area. Four or five of us, all, plus the sergeant lieutenant, have to get to that area. And I made it through the door first. And the, the gunner saw what was going on in the day room. He said, Bodica, stop. Don't go any farther. Don't go any farther. And I stopped. Um, luckily, he, I don't, um, luckily, he told me to stop because if I would have went through the next door, I probably would have got taken out by the broom handle or something, you know, something assaulted pretty bad. It was a setup. 
Clearly, yeah. In the original prison you were in that you discovered the green wall, did, the, did those guards, did had they actually murdered people? They didn't murder people. They set inmates up for more time, giving them the third strike, you know, beating them down, dooting them up, planting weapons in their cells, giving them their third strike. So some of these guys were going to go home in a week and they've been down for 15 or 20 years and and they knew who they were. And these, these inmates would be a problem to the staff through the months. And then they would plot it out and program and, and they would walk into their cells, do a cell search, cuff the inmate to the rail. So he did a cell search and then pull a inmate manufacturer shank out of their jumpsuit and, and say, look, this, what, what are you doing with a shank? That's not mine. You're setting me up. Well, who are the court's going to believe? They're going to believe the officer before the inmate. You know I mean? So that's what these guys were doing. They were planting weapons in their cells and, and giving them more time, third strikes or longer sentences. Due to your helping expose the green wall, were you able to then help those incarcerated and help them get released that had the erroneous third strike? My story, after I did what I did and testified in the Senate hearings, the state capitol, and then after I got done doing everything I did, I changed policies and procedures in the Department of Corrections. Senator Spear and Senator Romero uh, drafted up a bill to protect whistleblowers to come forward because at the time... The California Department of Corrections didn't have a policy or procedures for whistleblowers to come forward. And with my testimony at the Senate hearings that day, it opened a, a, a new light for officers to, and after they passed the bill due to my case. Um, and then all of a sudden investigations were happening about and other and things. Inmates were getting relieved from their from their sentences because they were set up by other Greenwald members. And but uh, no, no homicides or deaths, just a lot of uh, illegal criminal activity going on. I assume that you had fear for your life throughout all of this. How did you deal with that kind of stress and, and subsequent PTSD and, and also in deciding to write the book? I mean, that must have been in its own way terrifying. Very much so. I, um, after I uh, uh, got done testifying at the Senate hearings of the state capitol um, that night, I, I, have, I had to go off the grid for six months. Uh, they, Joe Renoso and a couple people moved me up to Northern California. And the pictures are on the book and it talks a little chapter about the book. And I had to go up by Mount Shasta, 20 miles off the grid, two lock gates. And after that night, the next morning I got up, there was snow on the ground. And, and I stayed up there for about six months till everything started calming down a little bit. And, and then I went home, I went back home to Arizona and, and then my, my mom, my dad told me my mom wasn't doing very good. So I went down there to help my dad take care of my mom. And, and then shortly after that, I met my, my, my wife now that I'm with now. And, and then, uh, Shortly after that, uh, a few months later, I had to go out and do uh, deposition testimony on my case because I was suing the Department of Corrections with my lawyer, Lanny Tron, out of Camarillo. And uh, it was our turn to take, you know, do depositions on officers and who perjured themselves under oath. It's all in the deposition testimony is all in the book. Uh, there's names and everything in the book. And then shortly after that, um, I had to come home and, and then my father got real sick. My wife now told me, hey, you need to come home. Your dad's not doing well. I came home and my brother came in from San Jose and we got to meet with my father for, before he passed in the hospital bed. And he said, dad, my, my dad said, hey, son, we're, like I said earlier, my, your mom is so proud of you and me. Write a book. We want you to write a book and share your story with the world. Share everybody who needs to know behind the prison walls what happens. And, and I did. I, I, I followed my father's wishes and my wife's wishes and I sat down for a couple of years and put everything together and I put names and evidence. There's so much evidence in that book. It's real powerful. It's nonfiction. I've got all the documentation to support everything in that book. And, 
that book's been out since 2009 and, and here we are 2021 and never been challenged on it. The union's never challenged on it. I even had the chapter president, Susan, the chapter president walk up to me at Pleasant Valley State Prison. And I walked up to him and I looked at him. I said, awesome. Hey, Mike, he's our chapter president of the union. 30,000 officers in control. Of I said, hey, Mike, I need your help. I've been trying to get old. And he looked at me and goes, oh, you're Officer Vodka. I said, I can't talk to you. And he walked away from me. My own chapter president looked at me and said, I can't talk to you. And he walked away from me. You know why, Susan? Because he he's representing the bad guards. They represent the prison guards that are doing wrongdoing. They didn't care about the good guard. They don't care about good guards. They only care yeah. about the guards you know, who they can represent. And, that, and he had to testify in the Senate hearings in front of the uh, senators, Jackie Spear and Gloria Romero and other senators. He had to tell, they asked him, why didn't you help Officer Vodica? Well, and then, just like I said, he, he was uh, he, he was told by his counsel, his attorneys at CCPOA, not to say anything and walk away from me. The biggest fear I had, I, I took, I had a five-year-old son at the time and my mom and dad were down at Pismo Beach and I came out of hiding, you know, come, I wanted to go see my mom and dad on the way home and I, I picked up my son and we went down to Pismo Beach to see my, my his grandparents and there was, it was his first grandson and we passed the Mid-State Fair and passed Robles and my son goes, Daddy, can we go there one night? And I go, yeah, I'll take you. So I took him one night when I was visiting with my mom and dad and we, we had a great time at the fair and as I was walking out of the fair uh, with my son, I was approached by a sergeant. He got in my face and he told me, hey, Vodica, leave, you're a rat, you're a snitch, leave these guys alone, man, drop the case, let it go. You know, my son at five years old didn't need to see that. And I got him and he was crying, daddy, what happened? What happened? You know, it was hard. It was hard. Yeah. Yeah. As you got into discovering what was going on, how many wardens slash officers slash guards did you find out? How many people were there involved? Well, after we did our deposition testimony, the warden, the warden was, he was the last one at the deposition and we, uh, we were deposing him in Monterey. I was there. I went to all the depositions with my lawyer and they were the attorney general. See that the thing is the California department of corrections had their own attorneys. They don't want to, they don't want to defend this case because it costs them a lot of money, millions of dollars. So they let the attorney general who the people of California pay taxes to the attorney generals. Well, let's give it to the attorney general, let the people of the state pay for that, our, our costs. So anyways, we had the, the warden at the meeting of the deposition about halfway through. We had a photographer come in there trying to take pictures of the warden. He didn't like it. You know, a guy from Sacramento B, um, uh, Steve James, and he came down and wanted to take pictures and do a big article on it, on our, on our case. And, and then shortly after that, the attorney general said, we're done with this deposition. My attorney goes, no, we're not done. We got a couple hours. So shortly after that, we left and my attorney called the, the judge in Monterey and they had a conference conference call. And the judge personally told Mary Kane Simon, the attorney general, you need to produce Mr. Uh, Lamarck, Mr. Vodica, Mr. Tron have two more hours ago. He goes, well, I can't do that, sir. My clients, my client just took off to France. He flew to France tonight. He left the country because he knew we were getting to him. He knew he was bad. We had, we had him a hot seat, Susan, and, and he left the country. And, but when he came back from France, the California Department of Corrections, after the investigation was done, said, either you retire now with, the, with hardly any pension or we'll fire you, Mr. Lamarck. And then some officers lost their jobs and all that. About a, a good dozen of them lost their jobs. When you see the Black Lives Matter protests and you see videos of officers, you know, with the civilian population and you hear stories about 
some officers being violent against citizens, being violent against protesters, about being violent against unarmed people. How does all that make you feel? Does it stir up some of the same emotions? And then the idea that, that, you know, people say, oh, there's only a few bad apples. But I think to your point earlier, that when the good guys do come forward and say, this is screwed up, that there's a code, a wall that goes up, a code of silence where the perpetrators get protected. You're correct. I mean, in law enforcement, any profession, there's a code of silence and a wall. And, you know, police brutality, I'm totally against. You use force when you have to use force. You don't use force because you, you think you're powerful and you're above the law. Um, I, I'm against that. Uh, I always will be against that. Um, people are human. Everybody's human. I mean, just because you wear a badge or you have something on your chest, you're not above the law. You know, I mean, you can do, you know, you, you think you're protected, but things come around and, and it can haunt you and bite you, bite you in the butt later on. You know, and like I said, I'm defunding all the police and all that. I'm not, I'm not for that, you know, cause we do need law enforcement and all that. But when it comes to uh, police brutality and, and all that, I'm totally against that. I mean, you do, you do wrong and you be, need to be punished. The people that seek power and feel that they are better than when they get to put in place in positions where they have control over others, it can be a very dangerous game. And the green wall right now, Susan, is alive and well. It's still going on. It, it's happening at Donovan State Prison as we speak. It's happening at New Folsom State Prison. You know, there's a big investigation going on up there. I mean, officers do wrongdoing, you know, and the FBI and DOJ is looking at them. And I've been contacted by outside lawyers who use my book to reference in their briefs, legal briefs and courts and all that. RJD Donovan State Prison officers are assaulting ADA inmates down there, inmates that have disabilities, and they're saying we're the Green Wall, and we're a part of the Green Wall, we do no, nothing wrong. And the, there was a big, powerful law firm out of the Bay Area that represented civil rights violations down there. She read the book, she called me, she goes, everything you said in your book is dead on, Officer Vodica, Mr. Vodica. Your book really helped us put this case together. And, and now, uh, now the officers down at Donovan have to wear body cameras they're implementing body cameras on all officers in the Department of Corrections to protect the inmates and protect them, you know. And then at New Folsom State Prison, there's a big investment. I can't really talk about it because I'm a part, you know, part helping out on that. There's a, a couple officers already committed suicide because they saw wrongdoing. They reported to the warden and the warden chose not, not to do anything. And uh, a lot, there's two officers that got lost on suicides. And, and I can't really go into farther detail on that. But do you think, I mean, they, they still can turn them, their cameras off, of course, but do you think that that we can find a future where these things aren't going to happen? Or do you think that's just the our nature, the human nature of people feeling like they're in power and that absolute power corrupts absolutely? There's no reason to turn off your body camera when you have a body camera on. There's no reason whatsoever. If you're going to turn off your body camera, there's a reason for that. And that's what I, I feel I believe in. Why are you turning off your body camera? Are you going to do something that's illegal and, and get you and your partner in trouble? I mean, there's no reason for that. I mean, that's unjustified. I mean, you can't say that body camera just shut off on its own. I mean, you have to turn it on and off, you know? And I think that's going to be a deterrent for a lot of things. And it's going to help help um, law enforcement and, and uh, other means of uh, prosecuting the bad cops and, and go from there. Yeah. So, your book, The Green Wall, is available on Amazon. And do you have a website as well? It's 723 on Twix. My uh, Tony Fote did a real good website on it. 
about that website. It's on, it's on, uh, it's called 723 GW 723. Yeah. Okay. Uh, he, he did a real nice one and, and that's on the website, but it's, uh, it's most of the books are on amazon.com, you know, the green wall by DJ Bodica. Yeah. Great. Okay. Great. Thank you so much for your time. Stay safe. All right. Thanks, Susan. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.